0: This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 24 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. This will be another solo episode today based on my own research and writing. This is the story of Operation Jacques and is set in Colombia in 2009. It's one of the most amazing military operations I've ever heard of, and the more that I have read about it, the more certain I was that it was a story that needed to be told here. Although I have about nine different sources for this information I'm going to discuss today, most of the credit for this information goes to two individuals in the Office of the Command Historian at the U.S. Army Special Operations Command. That's Dr. Charles Briscoe and Mr. Mr. Daniel Coolidge, who wrote two articles in 2018, which were based on their own research into this topic and included interviews with many of the participants from the Colombian military. This episode definitely would not have been possible without their previous efforts. I tried to reach out to Dr. Briscoe to invite him on the podcast so as to hear the story in his own words, but unfortunately I was not able to get a hold of him. But, uh, Dr. Briscoe and Mr. Coolidge, if you're out there and you hear this episode, just know that I appreciate all the hard work you put into telling this story so thoroughly and completely. Uh, With that said, I want to start at the end of the story. On July 2nd, 2008, 15 hostages were rescued, by Colombian Army Special Forces soldiers from a guerrilla camp near the Inarita River in central Colombia. The successful rescue mission was the culminating moment of an operation several years in the making. Its perfect execution and its complete success were a major blow to the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC. FARC was a guerrilla organization which, by that time, had operated for decades in Colombia. FARC never fully recovered from their humiliating loss of these hostages, and is even now just a shadow of its former self. Many of the rescued hostages had been held in the jungle for years on end, and when they were tearfully reunited with their family members immediately afterwards, the scenes were broadcast all over the world by international news organizations. But the hostage rescue mission success was not based on overwhelming firepower or advanced technology or even an easily defeated enemy. Instead, it was based on years of painstaking intelligence work, an ingenious deception plan, and extraordinary secrecy and security measures among a few devoted members of the Colombian army. So a close examination of Operation Jacques will show you how intelligence collection and operational planning can sometimes be perfectly coordinated to produce incredible results. To understand how it all came to be, we need to go back nearly 60 years to the origins of FARC. FARC came into being in 1964 as the armed wing of the Colombian Communist Party. By that time, 1964, the country had already struggled through nearly 16 years of bloodshed. A period of violence between the liberal and conservative parties began in 1948 with the assassination of the leading liberal presidential candidate named Jorge Elessio Gaitan. The conflict which followed Gaitan's assassination became known as La Violencia, and 200,000 to 300,000 people had been killed by the time FARC emerged a decade and a half later. Now, FARC's stated goal was the overthrow of Colombia's government and the installation of a Marxist regime in its place. Over the years and decades to come, FARC often claimed to have between 10 and 20,000 members at various times. They funded their operations through kidnapping Colombian citizens for ransom, through illegal mining operations, through extortion and by levying taxes on the citizenry in the areas that they controlled. Later on, FARC began to work more closely with these poor farmers in the rural areas in an effort to earn the support of the people that they claimed to represent. They also began to engage in some marijuana cultivation and trafficking in the 1970s. Around that time, efforts by the U.S. government to crack down on the Mexican and Jamaican gangs selling marijuana in the United States had an unintended consequence. They created an economic opportunity for Colombian farms to fill that gap, which subsequently provided more operational funding to FARC. But in 1982, everything changed. FARC held a leadership conference and a vote was taken to begin widespread farming and trafficking of coca. FARC had already dabbled in small-scale operations, which had shown some promise, and before long, cocaine became Colombia's premier export. Colombian coca farmers were able to wrestle the cocaine market away from their competitors in Peru and in Bolivia, and the coca plant thrived in the high-altitude farmlands that were found in Colombia. So as a result of this new source of funding, FARC now emerged from stagnation as a re-energized and well-equipped guerrilla army. They now had the people, the funding, and the equipment to become a serious threat to the Colombian government and to national security there as a whole. But besides this influx of money from coca production, FARC still used kidnappings and hostage-taking as sources of income, and these were also hugely profitable industries for them. Over the many years that FARC operated in Colombia, they took and held thousands of hostages. These hostages ran the gamut from captured Colombian soldiers to political figures to ordinary citizens. Sometimes the hostages were quickly released after a ransom was paid, and sometimes they were held for years if they were of high value. Uh, if, far, if they were of high value, FARC would demand one or more of their own captured leaders in exchange for the most valued hostages. Some of these hostages died from the harsh conditions of captivity, and others died while they were attempting to escape. <clears throat> one of these high value hostages who was held in the jungle for many years was Ingrid Betancourt. Betancourt was a senator in the Congress of Colombia and was campaigning as a candidate for the Colombian presidency when she was taken hostage. She and members of her entourage were captured at a FARC checkpoint while attempting to visit the town of San Vicente del Calguan on February 23, 2002. The town was believed to be free of FARC presence right up until she arrived and was taken prisoner. Betancourt was held for the next six and a half years by FARC and frequently moved around to avoid being located and rescued by the Colombian forces that were searching for her. Ingrid Betancourt's kidnapping was one of the very few from that country to actually receive widespread international attention up until that point because she was a presidential candidate. This was a huge, huge deal, of course. Less than one year later, after she was taken, three U.S. contractors were also captured in an event which would have very long-term consequences for FARC and for Colombia as a whole. Beginning back in the year 2001, the U.S. Southern Command, or SOUTHCOM, awarded an $8.6 million contract to a company called California Microwave Systems, which was a subsidiary of the much larger Northrop Grumman, which everyone's familiar with, I'm sure. The contract was awarded for aerial reconnaissance services in Colombia. The mission called for small crews of contracted pilots to fly single-engine Cessna 208B caravans and locate coca fields for follow-on eradication efforts. Because cocaine production was a major source of funding for FARC, as I've already mentioned, eliminating their ability to harvest the coca was seen as a necessary step towards reducing their operational capabilities. However, there were problems with this mission almost immediately. The contracted pilots were flying six days a week. They were pushing their small aircraft to the absolute limits. The high-altitude operating environment in the Andes Mountains meant that they could not even take off from the nearby airstrips with their fuel tanks topped off because they couldn't get sufficient lift with so much weight. The pilots resorted to departing from Bogota with just enough fuel to land at a Colombian military base near La Randia and then refuel and fly their daily missions before returning to base. The single-engine Cessnas were also just not really ideally suited for the mission, and the pilots repeatedly requested that they be replaced with twin-engine Beach King Air 300s, which were a far more capable airframe. However, these requests were denied by the leadership back at California Microwave Systems, so they had to make do with the single-engine Cessnas that they already had on site. After the terrorist attacks in the United States on September 11th, 2001, the contracted pilots had a lot more leeway to run missions to locate FARC forces in the jungle. This was a major, major change from simply identifying coca fields for the Colombian military to eradicate. The U.S. pilots were shot at by FARC patrols on a number of occasions, and two of the most senior pilots eventually resigned because their efforts to lower the risks they were taking with each flight were ignored or actively suppressed by the company. So then, fast forward a little bit, on February 13th, 2003, the exact situation which they had feared finally happened. A Cessna caravan, piloted by Tom Janis, experienced engine trouble while out on a mission. He was flying with a crew of four others, a soldier from Colombian Army Intelligence named Luis Alcides Cruz, and three other U.S. contractors, Thomas Howe, Keith Stansel, and Mark Gonzalez. The pilot, Janice, retired from the U.S. Army as a Chief Warrant Officer 5, and he had spent 32 years in the service, including tours in Vietnam. So if anybody was capable of handling the situation that day over the jungle, it was definitely him. Tom managed to put the caravan down in a controlled crash landing, and everyone on board miraculously survived the impact. But FARC forces soon located them and captured all five men. Janice and the Colombian soldier named Cruz were both injured in the crash. The two men were unceremoniously executed less than one mile from the crash site since they were both unable to walk out on their own. The other three men, Howell, Stansel and Consalves, began what would turn out to be more than five years' captivity with FARC. When news of the automated distress signal and the subsequent crash of the caravan reached Southcom headquarters near Miami, Florida, very little action occurred. There just wasn't any agreement in place between the U.S. and Colombian governments, which would allow for U.S. special operations forces to participate in a rescue effort in Colombia. And therefore, there were no recovery plans in place, nor was there any type of a quick reaction force to implement those plans. Furthermore, since the men taken prisoner were all civilian contractors, they weren't considered U.S. government personnel, so U.S. foreign policy did not dictate a major response at the time. Essentially, these men just slipped through the cracks. Since there was no recovery effort by Southcom, other pilots and personnel from California Microwave Systems took to the skies in the company's other Cessna caravan near the crash site for the next few weeks to look for signs of life, but they never spotted any. The men had disappeared into the jungle within an hour or two. The following month, that second caravan also crashed, this time killing the three contractors on board at that time. That was the end of any immediate rescue efforts for Howe and Stansel and Gonzalez, other than periodic flights to drop leaflets over the jungle, which offered rewards for the safe return of hostages. The three surviving Americans were now counted among the approximately 500 other long-term hostages being held by FARC. With so many hostages, a major portion of FARC's day-to-day operations involved simply caring for and constantly moving around their captives. They weren't especially well cared for, and they all suffered greatly during captivity, but they still required a bare minimum of food and water and medicine and guard so as to provide value to FARC as leverage against the Colombian government. Uh, although no immediate plan to free the American hostages materialized, their capture did spur the U.S. government to pivot more of their efforts in Colombia away from past counterdrug efforts and towards hostage rescue. A little more than three months after they were captured, a Colombian journalist named Jorge Enrique Botero was admitted to the FARC camp in July 2003, where the three Americans were being held, and he was able to briefly interview them. This videotaped interview was the first proof of life that the U.S. government had for the contractors. The U.S. Embassy in Bogota, Special Operations Command South, and Southcom all began to make plans and move people and equipment into place in order to get eyes on the hostages and to work with their Colombian partners to effect a rescue. Uh, Any direct action to free hostages under any circumstances is tremendously dangerous, and the Colombian military in particular at this time was extremely hesitant to try a raid to free the hostages. The reason for this was that in May 2003, a Colombian Special Forces unit had attempted another daring daylight rescue of a different group of 13 hostages, but that mission had ended in disaster. A Black Hawk helicopter flew in low over the FARC encampment, and Special Forces soldiers fast roped down into the jungle just as they had planned, but the FARC commander on the ground ordered all of the hostages to be immediately executed right then and there. Nine of those 13 captives died on the scene, and three others were severely wounded, with only one of them escaping unscathed. So the potential for a similar result this time around with a presidential candidate and several foreign hostages in the crosshairs was just too much of a risk for the Colombian military to ignore. So they were very risk-averse at this point after what had happened the last time. But inside the Colombian military, there was still one man who was willing to initiate a complex and risky operation to rescue the hostages even after All the previous attempts had failed. His name was General Mario Montoya Uribe, the commander of the Colombian Army. He created a small team of hand picked special operators and intelligence personnel for an unparalleled mission. A mission that would involve total secrecy, of course, but even more than that, it would require actively manipulating and deceiving not only FARC, but all other elements of the Colombian military and government, and even U.S. military and government agencies. General Montoya. Understood right from the start that there was no way for the operation to succeed if too many people knew about it ahead of time. The plan, which soon evolved under his leadership, was called Operation Jacques, or Czech in English, as in from the game of chess. But despite his risky and fearless stance on rescuing the hostages, the original concept for the linchpin of Operation Jacques didn't actually originate with General Montoya. Rather, it had come up from the bottom of the military's hierarchy a junior non-commissioned officer within a Colombian Army Signals Intelligence Unit had approached his leadership with a new and radically different idea. This NCO recognized that he and his fellow team members had developed the capability to not only listen in on FARC communications, but to convincingly impersonate one of their commanders over the radio and even issue false orders in his name. So with this new development, a new plan started to come together. Now, it's very rare in most organizations across the world, in and out of the military, for new ideas to percolate up from the bottom to the top like this one did. But there can't be any question that the rescued hostages are grateful that all of this junior NCO's chain of command took his ideas seriously and continued passing it all the way up to General Montoya. This new capability to impersonate the guerrilla commanders over what they believed Was a secure communications network was slowly developed over a long period of time. Beginning around late 2005, a human intelligence source that the Colombian Army had developed within FARC was able to gain access to their current communications codes long enough to make a photocopy and deliver it to his handler. This was the kind of intelligence bonanza that every intelligence organization longs for, and it allowed SIGINT personnel to begin listening in on FARC immediately. Later on, When FARC periodically changed their codes as part of their normal communication security practices, the new codes were typically broken within a few days. So by the time that Operation Jock was being put together more than two years later, Colombian Army SIGINT had been eavesdropping on FARC for years. By December 2007, they were confident that they could send a few simple messages to test the new concept without exposing themselves to significant risk of detection by the FARC radio operators. The SIGINT NCOs presented their plan to their leadership, and it was well thought out enough to easily get the green light. They were able to inspire enough confidence from their leadership that Operation Jacques soon began to take place. And it would all be based on one incredibly risky and audacious deception. The SIGINT team would impersonate a senior FARC commander and deliver an order to his subordinate that the 15 hostages be moved to a different location. This move would be the Colombian army's moment to strike, a moment when they knew when and where the hostages would be, not hidden in the jungle, but at an agreed-upon location. So this operation was now not just possible, but also probably their best chance at rescuing the hostages once and for all. No longer would the Colombian army just be reacting to FARC's movements, which were unpredictable and part of a highly effective strategy of frequently moving hostages to new jungle camps. Instead, the army would make the hostages come to them. But in order to begin, the hostages first had to be definitively located. Once that was done, the army would convince FARC to move the hostages from their current location to a new one, which would be of General Montoya's choosing. Locating the hostages involved major deployments of Colombian Army and U.S. military personnel working in conjunction. These teams flew into different target areas to aggressively patrol the jungle and leave behind ground sensors to measure and detect movements, even after the patrol had long since departed. Overhead imagery from satellites or aircraft was normally one of the mainstays of U.S. technical intelligence gathering, but here in Colombia, this kind of intelligence collection was unreliable due to the thick jungle canopy under which FARC had always sought safety, and security. So presence patrols and ground sensors were the best tools for the job here. Fortunately, the Colombian army was already ahead of the game on this one. A major break had come a few months earlier in April 2007. One long-term hostage named John Pinchau was able to escape and make his way to freedom. Pinchau was a Colombian national police lieutenant who had been held captive since 1998. When he was finally able to escape on his own, he reported that Ingrid Betancourt the three Americans, and a number of other important hostages were all being held by a unit called the First Front Eastern Bloc. This new firsthand information contradicted, contradicted previous intelligence reports, which had placed the hostages with the 63rd Front, not the First Front. General Montoya's men were now able to narrow their search down to the area controlled by the First Front. The SIGINT team intercepted even more message traffic, which showed them that the First Front Planned to move the VIP hostages toward the Yari region near the Pacific coast. This development then spurred a new combined U.S. Colombian mission in January 2008. Reconnaissance teams were inserted into the jungle along the Apoporos River in southeastern Colombia. The ground teams conducted a cordon and search mission to locate the hostages while simultaneously preventing FARC from moving north towards Yari. The strategy paid off when a recon team finally observed the three American hostages bathing in the Apoporus River one day while under guard by approximately 20 guerrillas. However, just a few days later, the guerrillas were able to disappear into the jungle once again, and contact was lost. By this time, many of the U.S. Special Operations Forces, which had deployed for the possible hostage rescue, were forced to redeploy to the United States without ever launching that planned mission. Their time had run out. Fortunately, the Colombian army was undeterred by the loss of their partner force because other events had shown them that their planned deception operations could prove successful. During the same period of time as Operation Jacques was being planned, the Venezuelan government was also holding talks with FARC and successfully convinced them to release a high-profile hostage named Clara Rojas. Rojas had been the vice presidential candidate campaigning alongside Ingrid Betancourt when they were both taken hostage back in February of 2002 nearly six years before. Rojas eventually gave birth to a baby boy who was fathered by one of the FARC guerrillas in 2004. The baby was handed over to a peasant family in the Guaviare province in central Colombia, and that family eventually turned the baby over to an orphanage when they were unable to care for him any further. Once the baby's true identity as Clara Rojas' son came to light, The Venezuelan government interceded, and they were able to secure Rojas' release on humanitarian grounds so that she could be reunited with her son. When Clara Rojas was finally released, volunteer aid workers with the International Red Cross arrived on a red and white helicopter to take charge of her. The images of the hostage release were broadcast all over regional media, and that is where the Colombian army saw their opportunity. If FARC had trusted a non-governmental organization— like the International Red Cross, to receive the hostages, perhaps they would do so again. By March 2008, the Colombian Army was ready to try to locate the hostages again. The plan, which they had first devised the previous year, was now going to be put to the test. The SIGINT team started by first jamming all the radio communications from a FARC commander nicknamed Mono Joyjoy. Joy. Then, for the first time, They impersonated him and used his encrypted codes to contact the first front commander, who was known as Caesar. A simple encrypted message asking the status of the cargo, i.e. the hostages, was the opening move of Operation Jacques. Caesar's radio operator responded that the cargo was fine and the first major test had been passed. The SIGINT team had now proven, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that they could get inside FARC's communications and successfully impersonate them before we go on i want to take a moment to fill you guys in on the newest tool that i'm wearing and carrying in daily life it's the donovan non-metallic knife from black triangle if you aren't familiar with black triangle then you're really missing out i love these guys because they put the dagger in cloak and dagger if you've been following me for a while now then you probably already know why black triangle has called their newest non-metallic knife the donovan it's named after general william wild bill donovan the head of the U.S. Office of Strategic Services during World War II. Under Donovan, the OSS was unconventional, unexpected, and highly effective, just like Black Triangle's tools. The Donovan is manufactured here in the United States. It's made entirely of G10 composite, and it comes with a thermoplastic sheath and a couple of amazing extras, which you'll have to see for yourself. You can find it at blacktriangle.com. That's B-L-K-triangle.com. You can also get 15% off your first order with Black Triangle using the discount code SPYCRAFT101. I love mine, and I know that you're going to love yours too. So, back to Operation Jacques. Above all else, Operation Jacques had to be kept absolutely secret right up until the moment the hostages were safe. This was because the Colombian military was rife with corruption at that time and rife with FARC informants. If mission details leaked ahead of time, it would be a disaster for both the rescue force and for the hostages as well. So almost no one in the Colombian military was informed. But not only that, partner forces from the United States were also not even informed of the mission ahead of time. At this point, Operation Jacques was a purely Colombian military operation, with the exception of a few units engaged in patrols and a few U.S. aviation overflights by crews who were unaware of their larger role in a rescue mission. For that reason, General Montoya initiated some of the most drastic operational security and information security measures imaginable. For starters, nothing was ever written down. Orders were never transmitted electronically, only verbally, between the very few people involved in the mission. General Montoya himself only kept one small notebook with a few details, which he never let out of his sight. All of the vehicles and equipment needed for the mission were purchased on the civilian market with a discretionary fund used for intelligence operations. The two MI-17 helicopters used were taken out of service with the military and repainted red and white in the colors of a fictitious international aid organization. They looked identical to the Venezuelan helicopters, which had picked up Clara Rojas from after her release was negotiated in January 2008. This fictitious organization was backstopped by employees who set up in an abandoned office to answer phones and give the impression that the aid organization was real, just in case FARC got suspicious and checked up on them. At the same time, the SIGINT team, which at this point had more than proven its worth, moved to a remote and austere outpost deep in the jungle so as to perfectly mimic the conditions of the FARC leaders whom they were impersonating. These guys were all in on the deception operation, for sure. Both of the FARC radio operators they needed to impersonate were women, so two female soldiers had to be found who could mimic those voices. However, when no suitable candidates could be found, General Montoya's team turned to a pair of civilian receptionists who volunteered and moved out into the jungle with the SIGINT team. This was, of course, a major departure from their normal office duties, but time and time again, people were stepping up to the plate and to pull off something that would normally seem impossible. Special Forces soldiers selected for the rescue mission had all volunteered without knowing what for exactly. They were directed to shed their uniforms and grow out their hair to look more like workers from a civilian aid organization. Fifteen volunteers were found and they were already spread through various branches of the Colombian army. Their respective units were all given different reasons for the transfer to further hide their true purpose and true mission. Men who could plausibly impersonate foreign aid workers were the highest priority since this fictitious non-governmental organization had an international presence. Eventually, the team included a Lebanese-born soldier who spoke Arabic and another who grew up in Australia and spoke excellent Australian-accented English. Only one member of the ground team had not been a volunteer. General Montoya had personally selected the team leader, who was a man more than capable of of the kind of knife-edge deception operation that would be taking place. In fact, he could almost be described as a kind of a Colombian super soldier. His true name is not known, but he was identified in later reporting by the alias Major José Luis Rusi Caballero. Russi had already proven himself in an earlier covert operation, which verged on the unbelievable. Russi went undercover as a member of FARC and had successfully instigated a nighttime firefight between the group he infiltrated and a rival guerrilla organization called the Army of National Liberation, or ELN. He took advantage of the confusing nighttime battle, and he stalked back and forth between the two paramilitary groups all night long, driving them into each other with mounting casualties on both sides. By the time the sun had risen the next day, both groups had sustained heavy losses, and the Colombian army was able to move in and easily neutralize them. Roussi's ability to keep his cool through a kinetic situation like this and make the enemy do exactly what he wanted them to made him a perfect choice for Operation Jacques' ground force commander. Once the ground team was assembled, they began training at a remote compound which was purpose-built just for this mission. At this compound, they did multiple dry runs of the hostage handover until they were prepared for any eventuality. They trained extensively in unarmed takedowns since there would be no weapons carried on the mission. They had to maintain their cover as members of a non-governmental humanitarian organization right up until the last possible moment. All of these men were given legends to memorize so that they could convincingly portray aid workers and an attached media camera crew who would be on site as well to document the transfer. Now, right here, this is where General Montoya's incredible eye for detail showed itself yet again. He hired a professional actor to observe the men in their new identities and to critique their body language, mannerisms, and expressions until everyone involved was completely satisfied that the team had effectively shed their commando personas and had become a group of idealistic international do-gooders. Finally, the stage was set. Every element of the rescue operation was as ready as it would ever be. The SIGINT team, posing as a FARC commander and his female radio operator, had convinced the real FARC leader, Caesar, that he needed to transfer his fifteen high-value hostages over to commando, excuse me, Commander Alfonso Cano. Caesar was also told that a civilian aid organization had agreed to handle the transfer. After a few delays, the transfer was organized with the real Commander Cano, completely oblivious that he was being impersonated by the Colombian Army. The prisoner transfer was set for July 2, 2008. Only then, at the last possible moment, was the United States informed of what would take place. Colombian President Alvaro Uribe-Velez called U.S. President George W. Bush, who offered whatever help was needed, but stressed that there must be no bloodshed. President Uribe needed only the use of one U.S. signals collection asset already on station in Colombia, which was provided, and that was the sum total of U.S. involvement in the rescue. Once the mission was a go, General Montoya monitored the operation from the air in a nearby UH UH-60 Black Hawk Command helicopter, while the repainted MI-17 helicopter flew the short distance from Tolomita Airport to the designated landing zone at a grassy area near the Inarida River. Major Rusi and his team were inside the helicopter looking down on dozens of FARC fighters waiting for them. The hostages were nowhere to be seen, and at this point, the team was uncertain whether they were landing in a trap or not. Nevertheless, Major Rusi directed the pilots to land, and he walked out of the helicopter, followed by one of his men posing as a news cameraman to meet Caesar. Rusi used the force of his own personality and the presence of the cameraman to completely just bowl over Caesar. Meanwhile, the other disguised rescue team members offloaded cases of beer that they had brought as a thank-you gift to the guerrillas. Caesar quickly let his guard down, and the 15 hostages were then brought out of the jungle. Ingrid Bedencourt, The three American contractors, plus 11 other captured Colombian policemen and soldiers who had endured years of hardship in the jungle, were finally out in the open, walking straight towards a disguised rescue force. The hostages at this point were all just as oblivious to the deception operation as the FARC guerrillas were, and they even started cursing at the aid workers who asked for their names as they boarded the helicopter. The American contractor Stansel, in particular was really angry that they were being transferred yet again, and he started causing a scene until the one English-speaking Special Forces soldier whispered to him to calm down and that they were being rescued. Commander Caesar and one of his bodyguards named Gaffas came on board as well since the arrangement was for them to escort the hostages to Commander Kano's group. The rescue team was prepared for this as well, just as they had prepared for everything else. The receptionists who were posing as FARC radio operators had already communicated that the aid organization would not allow weapons on board the helicopter. But at the last minute, Caesar and Gathas both insisted on bringing their sidearms. The rescue team gave in to Caesar's demands, and the helicopter took off a minute later with all 15 hostages, their rescuers, and the two FARC men on board. With the hostages crowded inside all around them, the unarmed rescue team was now facing the moment of greatest danger for the entire operation. But luck was on their side in the end because Caesar wasn't used to riding in helicopters and he got airsick right away. With Caesar distracted, the team swung into action and tackled both of the FARC men onto the floor of the helicopter right in front of the stunned hostages. Both of the men were quickly disarmed and the hostages' shock at this sudden turn of events transformed into joy because they realized that their years-long ordeal had come to an end. The group began celebrating so excitedly that the pilots had to tell them all to sit back down so as to not upset the aircraft's flight. These moments were even captured on film as the soldier posing as a cameraman started filming once again as soon as the FARC men were subdued. Just a few minutes later, they all landed to a welcoming party of senior Colombian military personnel as well as the U.S. ambassador to Colombia. Within just a few hours, the news of this incredibly successful rescue mission spread throughout Colombia, and people everywhere took to the streets by the thousands to celebrate. It was seen by the populace as a tremendous moral victory in the war against FARC. Ingrid Betancourt was tearfully reunited with her children, whom she had not seen in six years. The American contractors flew back to Lackland Air Force Base in the United States after 1,967 days of captivity, where their families were waiting for them. Operation Jacques has widely and correctly been called one of the most successful military operations anywhere in the world in decades. It was perfectly planned and perfectly executed, with all of the hostages rescued and not a single shot fired. It's probably going to be studied for years to come as an example of how to seamlessly blend intelligence collection with kinetic action. Ingrid Betancourt went on to meet with many world leaders, including the Secretary General of the United Nations and French President Nicolas Sarkozy she wrote a memoir titled Even Silence Has an End, My Six Years of Captivity in the Colombian Jungle, which was published in 2010. Mark González, Tom Howe, and Keith Stansel were each awarded the Secretary of Defense Medal for the Defense of Freedom after their release. They co-wrote a book on the subject of their ordeal, which was called Out of Captivity, Surviving 1,967 Days in the Colombian Jungle. Commander Caesar, whose real name is Gerardo Aguilar Ramirez, was extradited to the United States in 2009 to stand trial on charges of drug trafficking. He pled guilty in court and is currently serving a 27-year prison sentence in a federal penitentiary. General Montoya was initially celebrated for his leadership over this mission, but less than a year later, he was forced to resign his commission from the Army during the so-called false positives scandal. The false positives scandal was something that where for a number of years, Members of the Colombian army had killed innocent people and presented them as dead guerrilla fighters from FARC and from ELN, who I mentioned earlier, in order to inflate body counts in after-action reports and thereby enhance their own professional reputation. So his own fame for leading Operation Jock eventually was far overshadowed by this much larger scandal where more than 3,000 innocent people were killed over a period of years by various elements of the Colombian army. Uh, FARC itself never seemed to recover from the success of Operation Jacques. The organization continued to decline over the next few years with many members simply tiring of the struggle and walking out of the jungle to give themselves up. Just a few days after the rescue, President Uribe's administration secretly made contact with Commander Kano and offered to begin talks to bring things to an end. These talks proceeded slowly all the way up through 2016 when a landmark peace agreement Was reached between FARC and the Colombian government. This agreement called for the decommissioning of weapons, an amnesty for FARC members, and job and economic opportunity benefits for those who surrendered. It went into effect in August 2016 and for the most part has held. This one perfect mission effectively ended a decades-long war and completely shifted the political balance of power within Colombia. It also elevated the Colombian military standing to be among the best and most professional fighting forces in all of Latin America, if not the entire world. All of this was thanks to the bravery, ingenuity, discipline, and leadership displayed by those involved, from General Montoya down to the junior signals intelligence technician, who had a brilliant idea and the capability to act on it. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram, at spycraft101 or connect with me on Patreon. My patrons get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. That includes a PDF copy of my own book, Spy Shots Volume 1, 101 True Tales from the World of Espionage. I want to say a big thank you to all of my patrons, including Joel R. and Josh F. With your support, I've been able to continue funding my research and publication across multiple platforms to date. Thank you all for listening. And I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.